Yeah. Yeah. That song, that song is almost as epic as Stuart's beard. Almost. Not quite. He told us yesterday he stores snacks in there sometimes. That's just gross. That's gross. Hey, uh, good to be back with you. How are we, Flatirons? Good, good, good. Glad you're here. Glad you're here. The uh, guitar parts in that song just make me a little bit violent. They make me want to fight just a, just a little bit. And we'll talk about that here in a second, actually. I was playing that song in the car the other day. My, my older two kids were in the car, and they're like, ooh, Dad, turn that up. That's one of the songs from Just Dance on the Wii. Like, I'm like, I don't know what that is, but they're like, yeah, it's a really old song. And I was like, no, it's not. It's, it's from the 90s. They're like, yeah, that's what we mean. It's really old. I'm like, I'm going to leave you on the side of the road if you don't shut up, you know? The 90s is not that long ago. It's a, that's a Lenny Kravitz song. It's actually a song uh, written from the perspective of Jesus. And that's kind of interesting because if you've been around here for a little while, almost for the past two years, we've been basically just saying, what if we just took a long chunk of time and said, let's try to get to know Jesus a little better than we did when we began. And so for almost two years now, that's the journey we've been on. And now we're in this kind of final series. It's not like we're going to stop talking about Jesus, but we're going to move into something else after, after Easter. But what we've been doing is saying, who is Jesus? What is he like? what does he care about and one of the ways that you can find out what someone cares about and what means something to them or what's important to them we talk about this all the time is all you have to do is follow their time or their money but there is another way that you can find out what somebody cares about and it's based on this what makes them angry well, what's that person willing to fight for and fight over? That reveals what you're willing to, or who or what you actually care about. Because when you're willing to fight or you get angry, that, that's an indicator that something you care about has been threatened. And so you can find out what somebody cares about that way. And so just some examples. Somebody gets injured, can't work out, they get angry because they care so much about fitness. Someone is called ugly, they get mad and fly off the handle because they care about their appearance. Uh, somebody sits around, watches political commentary all day and throws things at the television screen because they care about politics. Politics. March Madness kicked off on Thursday, right? My, my average swear words per day has gone up dramatically, except Duke lost, so that helped everybody involved, right? That's a, that's a very good thing. That just proves there's a God in heaven. That's, that's a good thing. Now, seriously, someone's kids get threatened? Watch what happens when mama finds out, right? Watch what happens when dad finds out. You get the point. The circumstances that lead to our anger give a great indication as to who and what we care about. So think about that for a second. We should all be asking ourselves right now, okay, what makes me angry? What am I willing to fight over? And that reveals who and what you care about, and that tells you a lot about, about yourself. Here's something cool about Jesus that we're going to explore today. Jesus got angry. And Jesus actually picked a fight. We're going to watch it happen today. And I mean really angry. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. There's only a few times in scripture that you see Jesus get the word that is used is indignant. It literally translates furious or, or irate. And today we're going to watch one of those moments unfold. And so I know there's a lot of new people in the room today because there is every week. And so maybe you haven't been tracking with us for a long time. We explore this all the time. But the Jesus that you're going to meet today is not the one that you've seen represented in art. He's not some kind of lame sissy Jesus with a blue sash carrying a sheep with him everywhere he goes, whining and begging everybody to just play nice and get along. The Jesus that you're going to meet today is an angry Jesus. And get this, Jesus in his anger never sinned. That's remarkable to me because I get angry all the time and most of the time I sin when I get angry. Jesus, his anger was never misapplied. In other words, his anger was always well-timed, well-placed and appropriately expressed. That's interesting. The way the Bible actually defines that is this phrase called righteous anger. 
In other words, there are things worth getting angry over, and we're going to see a healthy dose of righteous anger being delivered by Jesus today. And so that gives me hope, because as Jesus walks this line of anger, uh, we're also commanded in Scripture by Paul this, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So that says a lot of things. One is this, anger in and of itself is not necessarily a sin. There are things worth being angry over, but anger creates an amazing opportunity to fall into sin. Uh, Anger creates the circumstances and potential and opportunity for sin to take place, yet Jesus didn't fall into that. See, last week as we kicked off this countdown series, we got a little bit of a foreshadowing as to what was going to happen. Today we're going to look at Monday, but remember last week we were looking at Sunday, and in case you weren't here, let me give you a quick summary. Jesus is coming into town, he came into town on this Sunday, into Jerusalem for this famous feast called Passover, and he comes into town on a hill, down a hill, on a donkey, and he comes with thousands of other people, and a revolutionary parade breaks out as he enters into town. Remember this? People were waving palm branches, which is a signal of military victory. People are saying the word Hosanna, which means Lord save or save us now. They're actually singing psalms referring to Jesus as their king, which is a treasonous thing to say because this is a Roman occupied territory they're in and there's only one king that's allowed and his name is is Caesar. And even though Jesus was sending a very clear message by going into town riding on a donkey, which was an indication that he came in peace, everybody missed that because of the expectations they brought to the table thinking that Jesus was going to lead them in military action and revolt. And so when Jesus in this parade, this entourage come into town, Mark tells us that the very first place he goes when he comes into town is the temple. Look at this. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So Sunday night, Jesus goes into the temple and it doesn't say he says anything or does anything other than he just surveys everything that's going on. He just takes it all in. He just looks at what's going down. The day's getting late, so he just heads a couple miles back out of town and spends the night in Bethany with his 12 disciples. But Jesus is going to go back to the temple on Monday morning. And the temple was a significant thing for the Jewish people. It was a place of worship and it was a symbol of national pride. You see, when the Israelite people had finished wandering in the desert after they had been delivered out of slavery in Egypt, eventually they inhabited a place famously known as the Promised Land. And a couple generations into having a king, the famous King Solomon built them a permanent structure known as the temple where people could pray and worship God and they could come there and they could offer sacrifices which was key, animal sacrifices. It was symbolic of this truth that unfolds from the very beginning of Scripture all the way to the end of Scripture that sin separates us from God. There, are, there is a consequence, there is a fallout for our sin. Romans 3.23 says it this way, for the wages of sin is death. And even if you don't believe in God and you're in here today, you would have to admit that if there was a God out there, we'd probably fall short of his standards. Like if there is somebody out there who had the ability to create all this, we're probably not as good as him right? See, the temple was a visible reminder of sin separating people from God. There were barriers and there were walls and there were parts of the temple that people weren't allowed into right on down to this place called the Holy of Holies that only the high priest was allowed to go into and he was only allowed to go in one time a year signifying that not even he could measure up to God's standards. All of it was a physical representation of the effect of sin separating us from God and to some of us when we hear all that and we go animal sacrifices and all that we go that's brutal that's primitive that's weird how could that have any effect if there is a God out there how could sacrificing a a goat or something like that somehow make you right with the creator of the universe how's that work and 
The Bible is really clear from cover to cover. Hebrews 10.4 says it this way. It is impossible, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In other words, that's not what was going down in the temple. It's not like you could just go bring a goat, kill it, and go, okay, I'm okay. That's not the way it works. What that was was a foreshadowing of something far more significant, this thing called faith. This outward expression of an inward trust that says, God, I trust that one day you are going to provide for me something that I cannot provide for myself. Namely, you're going to provide a perfect sacrifice on my behalf, which is what Jesus came to be. It's always been faith that saves people, not the act of making a sacrifice. And this temple was a place for people to express their faith in a loving, merciful God that would forgive their sins and draw people closer to him. It was a place of worship, get this, for all people. You may have seen that in that, that, that thing we showed on the screens that there was even a court for non-Israelite, non-Jewish people known as the court of the Gentiles. That means every non-Jewish person who wanted to come worship God was allowed to do so. The temple had this appearance of being exclusive, but in reality it was actually designed to be inclusive for all people. And the temple was also a sign of national pride. It was something rich with history. It was something that meant a lot. It symbolized for them that God is with us and we are okay. And so when the temple was destroyed the first time, that was a major blow to national pride. Do you remember how it felt when those planes flew into those towers? You remember how it felt when you heard, oh, they hit the Pentagon too. And you remember how it felt when we heard that they were also targeting the White House. Imagine if they would have gotten the White House as well, how that would have felt for us and you're starting to scratch the surface for how it felt for Jewish people when the temple was destroyed later it was rebuilt on a smaller scale and it's this smaller scale temple that Jesus visits on this Monday morning the week of Passover remember millions of Jewish and non-Jewish people are flocking into town for this huge feast and they all will make their way through the temple and they all will want to make sacrifice and many of them are coming from so far away that it was difficult for them to travel with their animals and so many people came into Jerusalem with the intention of purchasing animals there to make a sacrifice in the temple and guess who saw an opportunity to capitalize the people running the temple, the religious guys, and the Roman government. They saw an opportunity to make some money out of this deal, which is what wit Jesus witnesses on this Sunday night when he goes into the temple and surveys everything. And then he just, he stays cool. He goes back, he spends the night, but then he's going to go back into the temple on Monday and he's going to wreck shop. Watch what happens. Look at this, Matthew 21, 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. I love this. There's absolutely no indication of Jesus having a discussion. There's no warning. There's no, hey, I'm going to count to three. You know, one, two, you better move. I mean it. You know, there's none of that. Jesus just heads into the temple and he wrecks shop and he has clear and decisive action against injustice. And a lot of us, that makes our heart beat faster when we see Clear and decisive action against injustice. There's something in us that that resonates with and we go, that's right. That's righteous, in fact. Jesus is in the middle of this righteous anger thing right here. He doesn't try to bargain. He's not trying to be diplomatic. It's like there's a countdown going on with every step he takes closer to the temple and as soon as he enters, the bomb goes off and the question has to become, what is it about what's going down in the temple that's so offensive to Jesus that he would physically intervene the way that he does right here? Picture this with me, all right? Picture that temple again. 
So when Jesus walks into the temple, what he walks into is the court of the Gentiles, this place that was meant to be inclusive for anybody and everybody who was not a Jewish person to come and worship God. The whole intent behind it was to say, God cares about you. God cares about all people. And it's in that place, in the court of the Gentiles, where people are buying and selling and they're exchanging their money. It's a glorified flea market that's going down in the temple courts. There are money changers there who are upping the exchange rate because there's so many people coming with their foreign currency. And so the the people who want to give their tithes and offerings to the temple are actually being, being ripped off. So guess who's making money? Rome, because they get to tax the money. And all the religious people running the temple because they get to charge whatever rate they want to. So it's a great deal for everybody except the people who are coming with hearts full, ready to worship God. That's what Jesus sees. Then I think it's really interesting. Both Matthew and Mark give us this. If you've got your Bibles or your programs, you may want to circle this. Jesus actually targets a specific group of people. Did you see who it was? Those selling pigeons. Seems kind of random, seems kind of arbitrary. Like, why would they be specific? Why is Jesus being specific? Like, why didn't they just say those selling animals, those selling birds? Why, why pigeons? Why is that a big deal? That stands out to me for a couple of reasons. One is this. When Jesus was eight days old, okay, it was customary for Jewish boys to be circumcised on the eighth day. And if they were close enough to the temple, people would journey to the temple so that they could be circumcised in the temple on the eighth day. And on the eighth day when Jesus was taken to the temple, this is what went down. Look at Luke 2.24. They came to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young what? Pigeons. So Jesus' parents, when he was taken to the temple, made a sacrifice, and that sacrifice was pigeons. And apparently that was according to the law of the Lord. So where do you find that? Well, if you flip all the way back to Leviticus, it's great reading. Go read it tonight. You'll be asleep in five seconds. There was a... There was a command given to women who had baby boys. It said, when, when you go to the temple to have him circumcised, this is what you do. And it says, and if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons. Two pigeons. It was known as the offering of the poor. Here's, here's my theory. It's likely that Jesus, year after year, when he journeyed to the temple, watched his parents have to make the offering of the poor because they were poor. Jesus knew what it meant to be poor. He knew what it was like to watch his blue-collar father barely scraping by, come to the temple only to be humiliated so that people could take advantage of him and rip him off. And so when Jesus goes into the temple courts on that Monday, he is going to target those folks who have taken advantage of the poor year after year after year. And I love this detail that we're given. It says he turned turns over their seats doesn't say whether they were still sitting in them or not I like to believe they were okay I like to believe they were so you know what you can tell a lot about somebody you can find out who they care about based on what makes them angry and what they're willing to fight for so what does this tell us about Jesus who does he care for the poor So imagine this scene from Sunday to Monday, and imagine the way the tensions would have risen in Jerusalem. I mean, not only did on Sunday Jesus have a revolutionary parade, palm branches waving, military victory in sight, Hosanna being sung, people calling him a king, deliver us from the Romans, all of that. But now Jesus, as everybody's afraid that he's going to raise a ruckus, that's exactly what he does on Monday. He goes into the temple and he just creates a disturbance, aggressively picking a fight with all of the religious guys around, and the question 
becomes. Why would Jesus do this? Because again, Jesus doesn't do anything haphazardly. Jesus does things intentionally and on purpose for a reason to communicate something. And Matthew tells us what Jesus is after. Look at this, verse 13. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Jesus is actually quoting from the Old Testament here. He's quoting from two places, Isaiah and Jeremiah, where it says this, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Jeremiah says this, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. I want you to notice what Jesus is doing here. He's not just quoting the Old Testament. He's walking into the temple known as God's house and he's saying this is my house and everybody would have been like wait a second what your house this is God's house and Jesus would have been like right right you're starting to figure things out then Mark gives us even more details look at look at verse 17 and he was teaching them and saying to them is it not written my house shall be be called a house of prayer for all the nations but you have made it a den of robbers. You catch the phrase, all nations? Who was it who was primarily being interfered with when he walked into the temple? People from all nations, Gentiles, non-Jewish people. He's saying, you guys have taken something that I intended to be inclusive and you've made it exclusive. You've missed my intent. So who does Jesus care for? The poor. Who else does he care for? Outsiders. People who are far off, people from all corners of the earth. Then Matthew, he gives us even more of a window into Jesus' heart. Look at, look at verse, uh, verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. The blind and the lame were typically prohibited from being in the temple because they were broken. They were messed up. Yet Jesus, where does he heal them? In the temple. They come in the temple as if Jesus is saying, listen, Nuh-uh, you guys have missed the point. They are allowed to be here, and I'll heal them right here. Who else does Jesus care about? He cares about the poor. He cares about the outsiders. He cares about the broken and the disqualified, people who have been told you don't belong, and it's not okay for you to be here. That's who Jesus' heart beats for. That's who Jesus is after. In a culture of hierarchy, Jesus is leveling the playing field. He's establishing reality. He's going, listen, you guys have missed the point, but let me explain something to you. You are all separated apart from a perfect sacrifice. You're all separated from God. Needless to say, that doesn't go, go over very well at all. Flip back over to Mark, verse 18. Look at how the religious guys respond. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. You think? He's saying he's God. He's saying he runs this show. He's bringing lame people in here. He's breaking all the rules, right? When it says they were out to destroy him, that means more than just kill him. That means they were actually trying, the way that literally translated is they were, they were trying to make it as if Jesus never existed. To render all of his teaching and everything he had ever done null and void. To make it to where once they kill him, no one will even remember his name. No one will know what he ever did. It'll be as if he never existed. Question, did they accomplish their mission? Here we sit 2,000 years later. How do you explain that? Matthew gives even, even more detail to this. Look at how they respond here. Verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, they're saying it again, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Same word, furious, irate. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yeah. Have you never read 
Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. I love it when Jesus says to the Bible experts, have you never read the Bible? (laughs) Jesus, Jesus gets angry, he picks a fight, and he has the spiritual gift of sarcasm. What else do you need? (laughs) Right? That's why I follow Jesus, that and many more reasons. Bottom line is this, Jesus came to break down barriers between God and the most marginalized people. You want to know who Jesus cares about? You want to know who his heart beats for? He cares about the most marginalized people. So the first application would be this, for those of us in the room who are not followers of Jesus, and there's many of us every week in here who are not followers of Jesus, I don't know how you ended up here, I don't know who tricked you into this, I don't know who promised you a good coffee and then you got our coffee, I don't know... I don't know what what you were promised or why you're here, what your objections are to following Jesus. I'm sure you have some very valid ones, but you need to understand and hear something today. And I can't control whether you understand it or not, so I can just make sure you hear it. Jesus had you in mind when he came. Jesus came for you, came to this earth, died on a cross for you and rose from the grave for you. He came for all those who are poor and that doesn't mean just financially poor because here's the reality, it's possible to be financially just wealthy and spiritually bankrupt. Anybody live that story? I hear it all the time. Maybe you're here today and you feel empty, you've been chasing the wind, you can't find hope, you can't find a purpose, you can't find anything of substance, you can't find anything worth investing your life in and you need to know Jesus came for you, he did something for you, in fact Jesus is something for you. Maybe you're like a lot of us around here who've noticed that we're creatures of habit, we have this pattern in our life where we'll find something that we think is worth investing in and we'll invest our entire life in it and at first it's awesome because it returns on our investment but then the law of diminishing returns returns kicks in and eventually we're investing the same but the return is not the same so then we start to actually invest more hoping we'll get more out of it but it seems like it runs dry it seems like we can never get a hold of it and it never provides what it once did I'll give you just a an example of that all right so I I bought a car last week it's the first time I bought a car in like 11 years by the way the technology has changed it's like buying a spaceship now (laughs) like talks to me scares me at red lights you know Stuff like that. But the cool thing about buying a car is for, for a little while, you look for every excuse you can to drive it. So all of a sudden, I'm offering to drive to lunch, and I never offered to drive to lunch. And all of a sudden, I'm offering to, to drive to pick up milk and pick up the kids from school and stuff like that. I never offered to do that stuff before because I just like driving, driving my car. But eventually, what's going to happen? Huh? Some of the kids will puke in the back seat. One of you will ding the car in the church parking lot. You know, the, it, eventually the new car smell wears off. And eventually after about two weeks, I got about one more week of enjoying it. After about two weeks, it becomes what? A car. It's just a car, man. My payment will stay the same. <laughs> I'm investing the same thing, but the return seems to be a little bit, a little bit less. And for some of us, that's not funny because that's the story of our life. So what we've done, we keep investing in things that are nice at first, but then they don't return on our investment. They don't provide the joy they once did. See, Jesus came to give you something that will never run out, that will never run dry. He came to provide you with the joy that you so desperately seek. And by the way, it's not in a thing, it's in him. It's in him. Jesus came for the poor. He came for the outsiders. Those who feel like they don't belong. Jim and I have this conversation in this lobby, in the West Lobby, all over the place. I hear it all the time. People walk up to me and go, Yeah, this is like my first time here. And to be honest with you, Scott, like I was afraid the building would fall down when I walked in. 
because I don't belong in a place like this. I was afraid it would like catch fire. I, you, Scott, you don't know who I am or what I've done. Uh, I've gone way too far. If there is a God out there, there's no way he could ever love me, care about me, or want anything but bad things for me. I'm sure that all those good things you said in there apply to most of the people in the room, but people like me, that can't possibly apply to. And I always look at people and say the same thing. I hear you. You're just wrong. Jesus came for you. Jesus didn't come for good people. You know why? Because there's no such thing. Because we let go of our obsession with trying to be good people. Relative to you, I might be able to be pretty good. You, relative to me, you might be really good. But relative to God, who of us could measure up? The Bible's right when it says there is none righteous. No, not one. So we have a bigger problem than we like to think we have sometimes. We think just being good enough will be good. But no, that's not... That's not who God came for. That's not who Jesus came for. He came for the outsiders. He came for those who've gone too far. He came for people who've done really, really bad stuff. So go ahead, share your story. Tell somebody around here all the bad stuff you've done. I dare you. You know what they'll say? Me too. <laughs> Me too. Welcome, welcome to the room. I love looking around this room because I've been here a long time now. I know a lot of the stories of people in this room. And I know when I look around, I can, I can up here process while I'm looking at people going, man, that person shouldn't be alive, much less be sitting in church, much less be where they are right now. It's only because of an act of God that a lot of us are in this room. See, Jesus specializes in this thing called redemption, creating good from bad. That's why he came. He came for the outsiders. He came for the poor. He came for the broken and disqualified. How many of you in this room, you've been told by religious people that you were not okay, God doesn't love you? How about this one? You've lived under the weight of religious guilt, been told to try harder. Simply stop doing all that bad stuff. Do more good stuff than you do bad stuff and it all even out in the end. You ever felt like, how about this? You ever felt like you're running on a religious treadmill and somebody else is in control of the speed? And they keep increasing that thing until eventually you can't run hard enough. You can't run fast enough. Eventually you just fall off in a heap. And it seems like every time you do, all that's standing around is a bunch of religious do-gooders telling you you should have run faster. You should have tried harder. And now look at you. You're a mess. Clean yourself up before you ever come back because we can't be around people like you who mess up and who fail. Anyone ever lived under that kind of unyielding, unrelentless, merciless religious garbage? Unfortunately, I know it's about half the room most of the time. Jesus came for you. Jesus came not to put a weight on you, but to remove a weight from you. Jesus came to take away the weight of sin and shame and guilt so that you could be free from all that and much more. Time out, okay? Let me take a little break here for a second. Every now and then, Jim and I get a couple emails. <laughs> and uh, that was sarcasm, the spiritual gift thing. Uh, <laughs> And every now and then, one of them will go something like this. Apparently, this church is just for people who've messed up their lives. Apparently, this church is just for people who've done a lot of bad things and a lot of bad stuff. What about those of us who haven't? <laughs> so I'm going to put it to you the way Jesus put it to you, okay? One day, Jesus is talking to a bunch of these religious guys, the Pharisees, and he says, you know what you guys are like? You guys are like when you're unloading the dishwasher. This is my paraphrase. There's no dishwasher back then, but you'll, you'll hang, okay? So you guys are like when you're unloading the dishwasher and you pull out a cup and you, it looks great on the, on the outside, everything's clean. Then you go to put it in the cupboard and right before you do, you catch a glance, you catch a, catch a glimpse of what's inside and it's like, whoa, what is that? It's repulsive. You're like, oh, back to the dishwasher because you looked clean on the outside, but on the inside, you're filthy. He says, you guys are just like that. 
It says, the basic point is this. Some sins manifest themselves in really obvious ways. We can't hide them. There's some sins that we struggle with. It's just obvious and apparent to everybody. There are other more insidious sins that it's actually relatively easy to hide them. And Jesus says those are dangerous because you can create a great facade and you can even feel good about yourself. But the reality is, and these are his words, not mine, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You look really pretty, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. You're rotten to the core. And so if you find yourself sitting in here week after week going lost and broken, lost and broken, how could I be lost and broken? I don't have any brokenness. I don't have anything I struggle with. You're not paying attention. You're looking at the outside, but you're not looking at the inside because all of us inside and out have all kinds of struggles and all kinds of deficiencies and all kinds of ways that we fall short of the glory of God. That's why we so desperately need grace. Jesus is the one who said, I came to seek and save the lost. I came to heal the sick. I came for sick people, not people who are well. He was talking to religious people when he said that. He never said they were well. They just assumed they were. Jesus came for religious people just as much as he came for the most obviously lost and broken sinful person you can imagine because they are just as lost and broken and sinful that's just not as obvious. So if you find yourself sitting in here going, I don't think this is for me, yeah, it is. (laughs) According to Jesus, yes, it is. Let me talk to the people in the room who are followers of Jesus. If we're paying attention and we go, okay, so if this is who and what Jesus cares for, that pretty much gives us our marching orders, doesn't it? If we're going to follow Jesus, and that pretty much makes clear who we're supposed to care for, uh, Jesus' half-brother James later summed it up really nicely like this. He said, religion, and I'll explain that word in a second, that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, when I hear the word religion, I immediately associate all kinds of negative connotations to that because of, to me, that means trying to be good enough for God, earn your way, all that kind of thing. The word here literally is the same word for worship. It's not a bad word. In fact, all this is saying is this. We are all worshiping all the time. We can't help it. We are created to worship. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, you're worshiping someone or something. That means with every action, every breath, every movement, every every dime that is spent, you're saying, this is what's most important to me. This is what I want. This is what I think is best. This is what I want to elevate. This is what I want to magnify with my life. And what James is saying is simply this. The kind of worship that God the Father looks at and goes, that's it. That's what I'm looking for. That's pure. That's uncontaminated. That's right in the middle of what my heart beats for. Does not involve this. Not a church service, not a song, not a sermon. What's he say? To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Literally, to go visit, to get physically involved with the most marginalized people. The, the people in his day that were most marginalized were orphans and widows. That truth pretty much hold true, holds true today. To go to the poor, to go to the broken, to go to the cast out, to go to the abused. That's why we as a church, we get our marching orders from our leader and his name is Jesus. And he takes us to places like South Sudan and Uganda and Afghanistan and Mexico City. It's why we're involved in Open Door down in Denver. It's why we're involved with Sanchez right down the street. We don't do this to make make ourselves feel like good philanthropic people we do this because this is what was done for us this is who Jesus is this is what Jesus has done and it takes our time and our money and our effort to go towards lost and broken people we don't want to put forth much of that at all to make religious people happy it's not why we're here James says this to keep oneself unstained from the world and churchy religious people hear that and go see keep yourself unstained from the world don't hang out with people like that they cuss Don't hang out with people like that. They do bad things. 
Don't hang around people like that. You'll be stained and contaminated by them. Let, let me ask you a question. Whether you've been tracking with us for two years talking about Jesus or two minutes talking about Jesus, does that sound anything like Jesus? What was Jesus accused of most often? Why do you hang out with people like that? See, nothing about what Jesus did, said, taught, or demonstrated would ever infer that his followers should remove themselves from the grit and grime and the messiness of the world. In fact, it's quite the opposite. So the literal translation of what James is saying is simply this. When he says, keep oneself unstained from the world, what he's saying is this. Don't get caught up in a pervasive, systematic exploitation of disadvantaged, poor, and marginalized people because this world is designed through our corruption to take advantage of of those who are most marginalized, to go, ooh, there's somebody I can step on so that I can get ahead. Let's do that. What James is saying is don't fall into the flow of that. Go against the flow of that. Actually be a lot like, well, Jesus, who went to be with marginalized people and to defend marginalized people. Jesus, who broke down walls and barriers, who rescued, who came to seek and save. Jesus, who got so angry that he turned over tables and seats with butts still in them. That's who we're supposed to follow. As this countdown gets closer, as the days draw nearer, as we tick off Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, as we draw close to Friday when Jesus is going to hang on a cross, the reality is Jesus hanging on a cross, if that's all that happened, wouldn't matter at all. Do you know how common of an occurrence it was for Jewish men to hang on Roman crosses? It happened by the thousands. What was abnormal was not what happened when Jesus hung on a cross on Friday. What was absolutely abnormal was what happened a couple days later on a Sunday. So you may be in here with all kinds of questions. Here's a few I think that I want to be ringing in your ears as you keep coming back. And I hope if this is your first time here today, you'll keep coming back for this countdown. But of all the thousands of Middle Eastern Jewish men who were crucified on Roman crosses, how did this one change history? How did that happen? Of the millions of blue-collar peasants who walked the face of the earth, how did this one change the face of the earth? How did he manage that? Of all the great teachers who walked around sharing their thoughts on life and their philosophies, how did this one, who never wrote a book, by the way, manage to be the most famous human being in the history of the universe? How do you do that? I have a suspicion that it has a lot to do with what happened on a Friday and even more with what happened on a Sunday. Listen, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but have you ever thought about how some of the songs we sing sound terribly arrogant? You're the only king forever. We're about to sing one in a second. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. God, you're higher than any other. Like if you're in here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you hear us singing that, you're like, wow, that's exclusive and arrogant. (laughs) You know, Muhammad Ali used to raise his arms and say, I am the greatest and it ain't bragging if it's true. It ain't bragging, it ain't arrogant if it's true. If it's true, it's the most helping, helpful, loving truth that anyone could ever be told. The God of the universe, the one who's greater than any other, loves you. Sent his one and only son for you so that you didn't have to carry the weight of sin and shame and guilt so that you could be free. Let's stand and pray and let's sing to that God. God, we come before you and we're thankful and we're grateful. 
We're grateful that you sent your one and only son to be for us what we could not be for ourselves. God, we thank you that you're stronger than our sin, you're stronger than our hearts, you're stronger than any condemnation anyone or anything could ever level against us, including ourselves. God, we thank you that you are who you are, you do everything you've ever promised to do, and you backed it up when you sent your one and only son, Jesus, to die on a cross, and you conquered sin, Satan, and death when he rose from the grave. In Jesus' name, amen.